I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, Justice Alito delivered a speech defending the Supreme Court's so-called shadow docket, where it issues emergency orders and summary opinions. But in a recent dissent in the Texas abortion case, Justice Kagan wrote, the majority's decision is emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision-making, which every day becomes more unreasoned, inconsistent, and impossible to defend. Here to illuminate the debate around the shadow docket are two of America's leading Supreme Court experts and two of our greatest experts on the shadow docket. Steve Vladek holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in federal courts at the University of Texas Law School. He's the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast and is CNN's lead Supreme Court analyst. He also testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the shadow docket and is currently working on a book on the rise of the shadow docket to be published uh, in spring 2023. Steve, congrats on the book and welcome to We the People. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be back with you. And Jennifer Mascott is an assistant professor of law and co-executive director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School. She recently testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the Supreme Court's shadow docket as well. Jen, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me here again. I think the last time I was on was right before I went on leave to actually be in the federal government working on some of the litigation that we're going to talk about today. Well, it is great to have you both back. And I think we should begin with a very basic question. Steve, what is the shadow docket? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, contrary to how it has been described by, among other people, Ted Cruz and Justice Alito, um, you know, the shadow docket was uh, is a term that was coined in 2015 by uh, Chicago professor Will Bode to describe something that's been on the Supreme Court's docket forever, which is orders. Um, nothing fancier, nothing secretive, just orders. Um, and Jeff will use the term shadow because of their obscurity. Um, not many of us spend a lot of time focusing on the orders the Supreme Court issues as opposed to the big fancy merits decisions um, about which so many of your episodes are devoted to. Um, but what Will was responding to and what I've picked up on a bit um, and what I think has sort of motivated the current interest is the perception that the court is doing more stuff um, through these orders, which are typically unsigned, which are usually unexplained, um, than it used to. That these orders have gone from entirely procedural sort of docket management um, uh, types of orders or sort of one-off questions about, say, executions of prisoners facing death sentences to um, whether nationwide injunctions will be allowed to stay in effect, to whether statewide COVID mitigation policies will be allowed to stay in effect, to whether controversial abortion laws will be allowed to go into effect. Um, and those rulings, of course, have a much larger impact. The justices themselves are starting to treat them as precedential. Um, and they're not necessarily providing all that much in the way of explanation for why they're reaching these decisions. So, you know, the shadow docket itself has been around forever. Um, the modern interest in it, the recent interest in it, I think is a reaction to at least the perception, and I would argue the reality, that in the last four or five years, the court has done a lot more stuff and a lot more stuff that impacts all of us um, than it had previously in the same context. Thank you for that helpful definition. As you note, and as you noted in your congressional testimony, 
There are historic examples of shadow docket rulings, including Justice William O. Douglas's stay at the execution of the Rosenbergs in 1953, uh, but the use of the shadow docket as opposed to the merits docket has increased, uh, especially since 2017. We'll talk about why that was in a moment, but I want to ask you, Jennifer, um, how you would define the shadow docket. Absolutely. Well, on a lot of this, Steve and I are in agreement that, I mean, obviously we both agree that the phrase shadow docket came into vogue um, when Will Bode, esteemed Chicago law professor, first used the phrase in a catchy law review article in, in 2015. And what it describes, as Steve mentioned, is the orders docket for the Supreme Court, the type of docket that all courts have. The Supreme Court's had it for decades. And when I was there as a law clerk in 2008 and 2009, of course, the, the justices um, often had to, would, would consider um, petitions from prisoners facing executions, um, decisions as to whether to deny um, cert petitions for fuller review of cases happen on the orders docket. And as Steve mentioned, uh, when parties bring uh, petitions before the court, sometimes for emergency rulings. Those also happen on the orders docket. But you know the, the the justices are really responding to cases in the form that they're brought to them. So as Steve mentioned, the justices are hearing about sixty to seventy. It used to be more cases fully on the merits each year. But parties, frequently the federal government, sometimes states, other litigants will bring to the court requests for emergency relief or other. Um, matters on the court's orders docket. And so the court deals with those cases in the form in which it's brought to them. And so that's led to a lot of these uh, rulings, which are public. They're on the court's website. Um, sometimes just different justices will issue shorter opinions explaining their ruling, but it's all in a preliminary stage before reaching cases fully on the merits. And the justices uh, have room to then more fully vet some of the issues raised before them in subsequent cases. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Steve, in your congressional testimony, you very helpfully summed up the statistics about the shadow docket. You argued that it's been on the rise since 2017, and you uh, offered six changes in how the Supreme Court has increasingly used the shadow docket since 2017. Tell us about how the shadow docket has been on the rise since 2017. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, it really is the confluence of a series of overlapping factors. And, you know, Jen and I might disagree a bit about the causes, but the the, the difference in usage is a combination of increased volume. So the court is granting more applications for emergency relief than ever before. Um, 20 during the term that ended on Sunday um, was the most that I've ever found from a single term. Um, 19 last term after an average of about 5.7 during the first 10 years of Chief Justice Roberts' tenure. So that by itself is a shift. Um, these grants, Jeff, more often than ever before, are having effects far beyond the parties to the cases. So as opposed to a stay of execution, which does not dramatically change any legal principle, it does not dramatically affect the applicability of a legal policy that applies to all of us, more and more of these grants are either staying district court injunctions of federal or state policies, and thereby allowing those policies to go back into effect pending appeal, or reaching out and freezing um, state policies that lower courts had not blocked. So another data point, during the court's most recent term, it issued seven emergency injunctions where the justices themselves reached out to block state COVID restrictions. During the prior 15 years of Chief Justice Roberts' tenure, it issued a total of four. Um, so there's this uptick, not just in the total number of grants of emergency relief, and not just in the impact of these grants, 
But also, all the while, the court is now telling lower courts that these grants have precedential effect. Um, so we're seeing contexts where the court is remanding disputes to lower courts for consideration in light of an intervening unsigned order on the shadow docket. Um, in the Tandon case, a case about California's restrictions on in-home gatherings that the court decided on the shadow docket in April, the court went out of its way to chastise the Ninth Circuit for not following four prior decisions the court had issued in California COVID cases, none of which had a majority opinion, all of which were orders. And so, you know, Jeff, to me, it's those three things, especially in confluence, more grants, more grants that have systemic effects and grants that the court is telling lower courts and everybody else are entitled to presidential effect without much in the way of explanation. Um, no one could have reasonably expected the justices to write lengthy opinions 10, 15 years ago when they were granting a stay of execution for one prisoner on, let's say, death row in Missouri. But when the justices are blocking California's restrictions on in-home gatherings or allowing President Trump's controversial immigration policies to go into effect for two or three years, I think that's where the pushback is coming for why providing one sentence of analysis isn't enough. Jen, what are your thoughts about how the shadow docket has increased? We'll turn to the why question next. But on, on the how question, do you agree with Steve that there are uh, more of these decisions, more with shadow docket effects, and more that have become publicly divisive um, in his testimony? He also noted uh, that as the shadow docket grows in terms of divisiveness, concerns about stealth votes that can't be determined become more pronounced and that there are new and unusual forms of relief. Uh, do you agree or disagree with, with that uh, how account? So I, I disagree with the framing. I mean, Steve has done yeoman's work, certainly, in, in going through and cataloging the various cases. But I mean, I, you know, from having been there and clerked and, and seeing the justices ruling and the care that they take with the law, my sense would be, and I think the justices all have all have said this and feel this, that they're approaching even these cases very judiciously trying to apply the rule of law. And I think there are, you know, attorneys even from different jurisprudential perspectives, perhaps than my own that might agree. Tom Goldstein, co-founder of the SCOTUS blog, was recently talking about the shadow docket and also mentioned that really it's an, or, you know, an orders docket. The justices are being brought these cases. It's unclear that they're reaching determinations in these matters that are different than would later happen on the merits. And I think even Professor Will Bode himself, you know, it's, it's hard to know, is it better for the justices in issuing these orders sometimes to not necessarily have their votes recorded or to write lengthier opinions? I think uh, Bode's initial article suggested that part of the problem might be a lack of transparency um, and maybe we wanted each vote recorded. And in just the last month in a podcast, he suggested perhaps maybe he was starting to reach the other conclusion. Because if we see these orders considerations as really preliminary, then perhaps um, not necessarily listing every single vote and every one gives the justices the freedom later to think more and perhaps reconsider or, or reevaluate. But in, uh, just another thing on framing, and, you know, Steve acknowledged this in his comments. Obviously, we have had an unprecedented time of emergency in this country with the with the COVID pandemic over the last year or two. And so, of course, as Steve mentioned, some of the response is the court being brought cases that are responding to emergency measures being taken at the state level. Um, and then Steve's research, it is it is true, the 21 um, injunction sought since 2017. But Steve's uh, testimony recently had a very helpful chart that started that showed 
showed that actually um, the granting of stays, the uptick started back in 2013. And I think that was coming because in the during the uh, Obama administration, parties were realizing that they could go into federal district courts and get single judges sometimes to issue rulings and injunctions against government policies. And so then the government was perhaps coming to the court and asking the court to step in. And so in that case, I think when we're thinking about do we want nine justices to be reviewing this extraordinary action for taking up the taken at the district court by one judge, it almost certainly has to be the case that nine justices together as a multi-member body would be able to bring more care and review than just leaving in place sometimes these extraordinary rulings by one judge at the district level. Thank you so much for that and introducing the important question of why, what caused the rise of the shadow docket? And you said that uh, among the factors are the increase in nationwide injunctions, the unique legal issues arriving out of uh, COVID um, and, and, and other factors. Uh, Steve, in your congressional testimony, you um, point to the confluence of four other factors, uh, which I'll let you lay out. And I want to thank you for such clear testimony because it's, it's, uh, it's very well organized and I have the four factors uh, before me. Uh, why do you think that the shadow docket has risen? Well, I mean, Jen is right in one sense, right, which is that, you know, the court can't go out and make cases. Um, and so there's no doubt that there are applications coming to the court that the justices are interested in. Um, you know, Justice Alito claimed in his speech at Notre Dame that they're receiving more applications. That's actually not true um, in the aggregate. Um, they're clearly receiving more applications that they want to grant. Um, and that's, you know, that's the shift that I think we're trying to figure out. Um, nationwide injunctions are, I think, a very convenient boogeyman for what is explaining this trend, but it actually doesn't. I mean, Jeff, I already mentioned some of the COVID cases where the court reached out to block state restrictions. Those are not nationwide injunctions. Um, of the 41 times the Trump administration sought emergency relief from the Supreme Court in four years, compared to a total of eight times from the uh, uh, Bush and Obama administrations over 16 years, only about half of those applications involved nationwide injunctions. Um, so I, I think part of what's going on, Jeff, is that the court itself is shifting in its approach to these cases. Jen's right that you can see the shift happen before Donald Trump becomes president. You can see the shift begin in 2012, 2013. And that's right about the time that the chief justice writes this very influential in chambers opinion in a case called Maryland versus King, where I think it can fairly be read to be saying that in general, the court is going to defer to the government more at the emergency application stage that is going to generally believe that injunctions against government policies cause irreparable harm. Um, and that that tilts the balance of some of this analysis in favor of the government party in most of these cases, Jeff, you can see, right, the, the shift start to build after that. But I, I just, I want to sort of, you know, clarify that the point is not just that the court is doing more of this and not explaining itself. Like, you know, one could make a coherent case as Will Bode has, that we're all better off if the court only did this stuff through one sentence orders. The problem, Jeff, for me is the confluence. It's not just that this is happening more often. It's not just that the court is not explaining itself. It's that both of those things are true and the court is treating these rulings as precedential. And it seems to me that if that weren't true, if the court said, don't treat any of these orders as having precedential effect, you know, I at least would be a lot less critical of this because I think it would look a lot more like what had historically been how the court handled these kinds of emergency applications. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Jen, your response to... 
Steve, uh, including his points that it would be better if these orders were not treated as presidential, as well as the procedural changes that he noted, uh, ranging from the fact that the court stopped formally adjourning for summer recess in the 1980s, and he argues that a majority of justice now have changed the standard for emergency relief and believe that whenever government action isn't joined by a lower court, the government is irreparably harmed. Sure, absolutely. Well, there, well, there's a. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, as far as ruling on the merits in some of the um, emergency petitions, it, it, you know, it is true that in the Tandon case, which Steve has has mentioned in his testimony, and today dealing with religious liberty, you know, the court and in, in, uh, looked at and engaged with some important issues, but also, I mean, it. it it engaged with similar issues on the merits in a full case in the Fulton um, matter dealing with the city of Philadelphia earlier this year. So I think it is taking a look at similar and the same constitutional issues in a vetted way um, and having a chance to give full consideration. I mean, another change that took place that's been mentioned in some of the testimony, I think in other proceedings where uh, Steve has testified, I think Professor Michael Morley mentioned a change in the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in 1988, where there were fewer direct appeals coming to the Supreme Court. And in, the, in some of the reports in engaging with that legislation, there was acknowledgement, well, we'll still enable the Supreme Court to step in if it needs to um, in an expedited fashion because it can always grant cert before judgment and do other things. So some of the changes are in a response, I think, to alterations of the court's jurisdiction that, that Congress put into place. Um, and Steve also is mentioning not all of the matters deal with national injunctions. That's true. Um, some of them have involved discovery disputes. Um, some of them, um, but but even the numbers, the total numbers, also sometimes, particularly with the Trump administration, are involving not necessarily 41 different policies with the 41 different motions, but sometimes the same policy facing multiple challenges in the lower court. So for example, with the travel order, that might account for six of the emergency decisions that Steve's referencing. And so the same policy being challenged in multiple proceedings, the government trying to respond, and then the court also having to having to weigh in. As far as the presidential effect, again, I think the court's very careful to also give consideration to these same constitutional issues in full merits disputes. But in situations where an emergency orders coming up on almost precisely the same issue, like in California, where the court says, no, you need to let this worship practice, religious liberty continue. California issues another um, order squelching it. You know, the court's going to say on similar facts, uh, we're going to stick with with what we, the, the ruling that we had issued, um, the ruling that we'd issued in the past. And just one, one uh, final thing, and I think this might get to the crux of why um, Steve and I may have different varying levels of, of concerns or thoughts or views about the court's proper role here. I mean, part of why the orders docket is becoming a bigger issue and question is because I think over the years, the American public has started to turn to the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court in general more as um, the final arbiter of policy disputes and issuing fair decisions. And so, you know, to the extent that we're concerned about these things and we want to keep things at the status quo, or to the extent the Supreme Court's even stepping in sometimes to um, stay district court injunctions, it's really coming from perhaps a different jurisprudential view that the policymaking should be done um, 
in the with the elected branches. And so to the extent that at different levels, the federal court's stepping in, perhaps the Supreme Court is having to put the brakes on and say, no, let's keep the issue with either the states or with the federal government so that it can represent the electorate's interest rather than, um, you know, elected officials' policies being too quickly enjoined. Uh, Steve Jen's uh, defense of the shadow docket attributes its rise to a cause similar uh, to that uh, invoked by Justice Alito. Uh, he, Justice Alito acknowledged that the courts had been issuing more sh- uh, of these rulings. Uh, he preferred the use of uh, emergency docket rather than uh, shadow docket. Um, and he said that the media had created the impression that a dangerous cabal is deciding important issues in a novel, secretive, improper way in the middle of the night, hidden from public view. Um, and he said this was a false and inflammatory claim. Um, and he attributed the spike to applications from the Trump administration after lower courts blocked the programs, the pandemic cases, changes to election rules, requests from prisoners fearing exposure to the virus, and restrictions on house of worship. In all these cases, he said, the court had applied its usual standards um, and uh, it was rank nonsense that the court issued its orders late at night to avoid attention. Um, What do you make of Justice Alito's account of the causes for the rise of the shadow docket and his defense of its use? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are two things off the top to say in response. The first is, Yes, the the if you if you describe every single category of application the Supreme Court has received in the last couple of years, you're describing the rise of the shadow docket. I don't think that's especially mind blowing here. Um, the problem, Jeff, and this is where I'm so glad that you opened with the quote from Justice Kagan's dissent um, in the in the Texas abortion case, is that these neutral principles that Jen has alluded to, that Justice Alito has insisted the court is following, aren't actually reflected in the court's decisions. Um, so, for example, if the concern about nationwide injunctions is that it's just inappropriate for the federal government to be subject to nationwide injunctions and frustrated in its enforcement of immigration policy, how to explain the decision in August in uh, Biden versus Texas, in which the Supreme Court declined to stay a nationwide injunction issued by a federal district judge against President Biden's attempts to rescind MPP, the Remain in Mexico policy? Um, if the concern is that the court um, shouldn't be deciding important procedural issues on the shadow docket in the first instance, which is what the majority relied upon to justify not intervening in the Texas abortion case, how to explain the ruling last November in Roman Catholic Diocese, where the court reached out um, four minutes before midnight, the night before Thanksgiving, to block New York Uh, restrictions on indoor religious gatherings that at that point weren't even in effect against Roman Catholic dioceses churches. Um, Or the April decision that Jen referred to about the in-home gathering restrictions in California, where the court made new law about the scope of the free exercise clause. Maybe it's a free exercise clause holding we like, Maybe it's one we don't like. The court's not supposed to make new law in this context. It's only supposed to grant relief if the rights at issue are, quote, indisputably clear. So, you know, Jeff, I think the biggest problem with the notion that this is all just the justices reacting neutrally to external stimuli that have provoked a unusual number of meritorious applications um, is then why the differential treatment. Um, And there's an easy way that the court could defend this differential treatment, the court could actually try to explain why the 
Roman Catholic diocese and California cases are different from SB8. The court could try to explain why, despite its aversion to nationwide injunctions throughout the Trump administration, it was willing to leave one in place the first time the Biden administration brought one to the Supreme Court. And here we come back to why it's problematic that the court is not explaining itself. Because if you have these latent inconsistencies, and if you don't have the court giving us justifications for the inconsistencies, Jeff, it leaves at least the impression that Justice Kagan described in her dissent, that these rulings are inconsistent in ways that don't smack of principle, they smack of party. Jen, so you've now heard Steve make three critiques. Uh, First, that the shadow docket rulings are insufficiently explained or unexplained. Second, that they're inconsistent in how they apply the same procedural standards in ways that he testified appear to favor Republican policies or plaintiffs over Democratic ones. And then the critique that he made before, which is that the justice insists that these uh, inconsistent and insufficiently explained rulings have precedential effects. And he called out the Roman Catholic diocese uh, decision as an example of prematurely and unnecessarily resolving unconstitutional questions. What's your response to those critiques? Well, I mean, to the extent that parties bring matters to the Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court justices are going to need to rule either by declining to grant relief or granting relief. And so we're sort of the makers of our own fate. If we're bringing matters to them, they're going to need to rule. And obviously, they have views on the Constitution. They clearly believe that religious liberty in the First Amendment is something that should be protected and had concerns uh, with some of the COVID measures, perhaps not... um, adequately protecting that. Uh, They also obviously have views on the role of the um, federal legislature and executive branch and carrying out different policies. And so they're going to apply those things. But to say that it's partisan, I think, is, is not is just not accurate. I mean, apparently, I mean, it seemed that President Trump, for example, in the wake of the November 2020 election, desperately wanted various individuals to weigh in and take action. And his own appointees declined to rule the way, apparently, that he, by his own terms, said at different times he would have wanted them to rule. Um, When I go back to Steve's very thorough and scholarly work on the Harvard Law Review in 2019, he mentions that I think the first... um, grant of a petition of cert before judgment in 2020 since maybe 2004, I'm sorry, yeah, in 2020 since 2004 was in the census litigation. And even there, the court ruled, uh, yes, it did grant relief by stepping in early, but it also ultimately did not completely rule for the administration that was asking for relief, second guessing and going behind and questioning Secretary Ross's motives there. And so it's not necessarily the case that every time the court chooses to step in, that it's necessarily even ultimately helping the party that requested the relief. Uh, We also had the court um, not fine for President Trump in the big DACA case with the Chief Justice uh, not going the way of, of President Trump. And that had been a case that had where there had been requests for the court to step in early on. Um, and um, so, I, and even with the Texas litigation, I mean, the Texas case prompted the, the Senate Judiciary Committee to have the recent hearing. But ironically, that was the situation where the court declined to step in. And I think if you look at the reasoning given by the justices there, they said there might very well, and there are certainly serious constitutional questions on the merits about the Texas law. But we all know and agree that the Texas law 
was structured in a way where the parties who were bringing the enforcement action were private parties. And so it raised very unique questions dealing with state sovereign immunity and jurisdictional questions. And so I think it's somewhat of a sui generis matter. And it's hard to really apply the typical procedural rules there where the court's saying, what party would we step in? And, and, and also, I think it bears noting there that it was the lower courts, actually both the district court in a sense, and then also the Court of Appeals issuing the stay that the Supreme Court decided um, not to disrupt. So sticking with the pre-litigation status status quo. So of course, I mean, there are many issues to unpack here. I think everybody would agree that the justices all, they're, they're smart, they're fabulous lawyers, they've got worked out constitutional views that are coming through in their rulings on these. But I just think across the aisle, all nine are really trying to rule in a way that they believe is consistent with the rule of law, whether it's on the orders docket or in merits cases. Steve Jen just gave a bunch of examples of cases during the Trump administration where the court ruled against the Trump administration um, uh, what do you make of that as a counter to the argument that the shadow docket is being used in partisan ways? And, and what do you make of Justice Alito's conclusion that the catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its way? He said this portrayal feeds unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court and to damage it as an independent institution. So I think the first thing I said is I didn't realize I was so intimidating. Um, the, the, the second thing I say, I mean, listen, yes, there are examples of emergency applications that the Trump administration or more specifically President Trump lost. Um, but this is the same problem I had with Justice Alito's speech, which is cherry picking examples that are outliers for, you know, to rebut the general proposition of the lack of explanation. Um, the problem one more time, right, is not that there are a lot of these and it's not that they're disrupting the status quo or not disrupting the status quo. The problem is that the court is not telling us what the difference is between the cases where they are disrupting the status quo in favor of positions that are ostensibly identified with Republicans and the cases where they're not disrupting the status quo and cases where that result is ostensibly identified again with Republicans. Like Jeff, the, the problem at the end of the day is not that there are outliers. The problem is that the pattern looks distinctly partisan. And the best way the court can disabuse us of that notion is to tell us why these cases are not, in fact, inconsistent with each other. And the point that I don't think Jen has rebutted, the point that I don't think Justice Alito did rebut, is that the court is not explaining itself. Justice Alito tried to say why they're not explaining themselves. But I think the problem is that that discounts how increasingly apparent it is that there are at least latent inconsistencies in some of these rulings. To, to the broader point of Justice Alito's insinuation that those of us who are criticizing the court are trying to intimidate it, I mean, I wrote a long piece in Slate um, that was published on Monday that tried to suggest that this is actually a deeply unfair charge, that there are those of us who are critical of the court entirely because we fear for its legitimacy. And where does the court's legitimacy come from? Well, Jeff, the Supreme Court has told us that its legitimacy comes from its ability to offer principled justifications for its decisions. Um, here we have a context where the court is handing down ever more decisions that are having ever broader impacts that lower courts and government officials are being told are precedential, where the court is not offering principled justifications. Now, maybe it can. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I didn't hear anything I said to be suggesting that they are acting in a distinctly partisan way or that they are incapable of providing principled justifications. The fact here, though, is that they're not providing 
principled justifications that satisfactorily explain why the cases seem to be coming out so heavily in one way or the other. And that's not just me saying that, that's Elena Kagan saying that. And when someone like Justice Kagan, who does not throw these you know, charges around lightly, publicly accuses her colleagues of being inconsistent in their unreasoned and unprincipled decisions on the shadow docket, you know, I think that's a charge that requires more than just, hey, at least we didn't throw the election to Trump. Um, you know, that's that seems to me a very different kettle of fish and a charge that is not just rebutted by saying we can point to a handful of cases where we didn't rule the way you thought we would. Jen, what do you make of Steve's claim that the fact that the court isn't explaining itself creates at least the appearance of uh, legitimacy issues? And Justice Kagan called him out. And he says uh, in his recent slate piece that this the legitimacy of the court is eroding quickly. The court is unpopular now as it's been in a generation. And he's worried uh, when he sees justices behaving in ways that whether deliberately or not reinforce the progressive narrative that the court has been subject to partisan capture. Thank you, Jeff. I mean, to be clear, I might be one of the only ones not bringing charges against anyone because I think that all of the justices are trying to decide cases and orders requests according to the rule of law. And I think that Steve has done a lot of thorough work and honestly has concerns about what he perceives to be, um, you know, just concerns about wanting the court to rule more broadly or, I mean, to explain more thoroughly. And this is where I think at the end of the day, I mean, my own jurisprudential view about the proper role of separation of powers and federalism would be to desperately want the court to be looked to less as the arbiter of policy and having to make all these decisions and all these requests brought to it. Because I don't think that nine individuals who are not popularly elected um, can really reflect the pulse of the needs in the United States. I think it's 50 separate states. I think it's the federal government. So I think that's one thing driving it. Um, I mean, as far as Justice Kagan's plea for uh, or concerns in the in the Texas thing, I mean, sh- sure, she wrote a dissent. She was on the losing side of that case and has some frustrations. I think similar, perhaps, to Justice Alito, who had frustrations in California versus Texas, where the court decided seven members, including Justice Thomas in majority and Justice Kavanaugh, not to even consider the merits of the latest Affordable Care Act dispute because of standing. And so two justices in dissent had quite strong views and accused the court essentially of sort of playing games because now the basis on which the law was upheld, the taxing power no longer is relevant because there's no longer a tax or the concerns of some people writing separately in Fulton. So saying, why on earth are we not revisiting Smith in this case on the merits? So, I mean, justices are writing separately on both sides in dissent and concurrences and not necessarily always getting the response of their colleagues other than what the colleagues write in in the majority. As for explanation, I mean, of course, there has to be a stopping point, right? Because some of the decisions issued on the circuit docket are denials of petitions for cert. The court's never given explanations about, well, rarely gives explanations about why it denies cert. It's not going to necessarily be able to give an explanation in all of these cases. I think if we would look, if we go through all of Steve's careful research, we would see in matter after matter, regardless whether the court issues an in-depth opinion at every step along the way. If you look at the sum total of the policy, so for example, with the travel orders, six emergency rulings, 
finally we get Trump versus Hawaii, a decision where the court actually gives extensive explanation about its views generally of the challenges brought against that policy in its final form and why at the end of the day, at least in its third iteration, the court finally found it to be constitutional. Um, Similarly, in the census case, we finally get resolution. I assume one reason the court, even if it thought it had jurisdiction in the Texas matter, might be hesitant to rule on the merits is because it's got Dobbs, a challenge from the state of Mississippi coming before it on the merits docket in December, where the court is going to look at the constitutionality of Mississippi's ban on abortions past 15 weeks. And I'm confident we will get extensive explanation from the court in that case about its view of the constitutional nature of the lawfulness of Mississippi's law. And so I think if we look systemically, the court is giving us explanation on these very important questions that are being brought before it. But I would really hope that as a body in the United States, we would learn a lesson from this to look more to the 50 state legislatures and the federal legislatures for answers uh, to some of the concerns that are plaguing the country during a time of great need. Uh, Steve, what's your response to Jen's answer that uh, the court may issue summary opinions in some shadow docket opinions, but eventually it does explain itself in full opinions. And um, what of the claim that the court doesn't do all that well when it decides cases quickly? Bush v. Gore is a famous example. Critics on both sides just said the the opinion wasn't that well-reasoned because it was done so quickly. And we saw um, during the election, uh, Justice Kavanaugh had to revise some of the facts in one of his election opinions because it was written so quickly. So what, what about that argument that uh, it's fine to decide some questions on the shadow docket as long as eventually the, the issue is uh, decided and explained on the merits? So I, I guess those are, those are related but also distinct. So let me try to take them, take them in order, Jeff. I mean, I think to, the, to Jen's point about how the court eventually is or may decide questions, I mean, that's of, that's of cold comfort, of course, to the millions of Texans who, you know, as we record this, have now been deprived of their constitutional right to a pre-viability abortion for 35 days. Um, it's of little comfort to the millions of Californians um, who had their COVID, who had the state's COVID restrictions enacted by the duly elected governor frozen by the Supreme Court in a way, Jeff, that never got to the Supreme Court on the merits. Um, in the travel ban cases, you know, Jen says the court eventually ruled on travel ban 3.0. Yes. Why was it 3.0? Because these cryptic emergency orders in travel ban 2.0 forced the Trump administration to change the policy. Um, so I guess I am just, you know, I am of the view that the notion that the court will eventually reach the merits doesn't account for the justification for having emergency intervention in the first place, which is to protect rights or not to protect rights. And that if we're going to concede, as I think we are, that these rulings are in fact having these broad systemic effects, that the justices are in fact treating them as precedential, then the issue is their lack of explanation. Um, Jeff, you're entirely right. I don't think the Supreme Court has a very good track record historically when it decides cases very quickly. You mentioned Bush versus Gore. You mentioned Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Wisconsin state legislature case from October. I would add, of course, the Nazi saboteurs from World War II. Um, But to me, the lesson to take away from that is if the court really feels impelled to act on an emergency basis, it should act as small as possible. Um, And that the, the, the lesson there is that if time is of the essence, rule as narrowly as possible. And if the circumstances don't permit that, figure out what is the best way to preserve the status quo 
so that your emergency ruling when you haven't had time for plenary review disrupts the rights of Americans the least and disrupts the balance of powers the least. And here again, I think you can point to examples of cases that are consistent with that view on the shadow docket, and you can point to examples of cases that are inconsistent. And the central charge by central concern, the thing that I have literally you know, lost sleep over sometimes, is what justifies why sometimes the court is going out of its way to issue early emergency rulings to protect, for example, religious liberty, but not to protect abortion. And there might be an answer beyond, we like religious liberty and we don't like abortion. Um, but this is where I come back to why if you're going to issue broad presidential rulings, you've got to tell us what they are. And if you're not going to tell us what they are, they should be neither broad nor presidential. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Jen, what's your response to Steve's claim that the abortion cases seem to be treated differently than the religious liberty cases? And I wonder what you think influences the time that justice has taken general. There was a famous article that Henry Hart wrote uh, about the 1958 Supreme Court term called the time chart of the justices, where he said that the time that the court takes is a function of the purposes they're trying to achieve and the audiences they're trying to reach. Uh, does that still hold up? And, and uh, do the justices actually need time to reason well? So thank you. So on, I mean, on the Texas case, I mean, Steve started off by saying that if the case is brought up in an emergency posture, the justices would be best to leave things in place as much as possible and rule narrowly. And I mean, in that matter, that is exactly what they did. Ultimately, they left in place the pre-litigation status quo. They left in place what had been done at the district court and the court of appeals level. Um, and it is true, the justices, and the justices actually did explain a little bit their reasoning. They mentioned major constitutional issues on the merits that they're going to get to in Dobbs. They also raised procedural concerns. And I do think it bears pointing out that it's it's unclear to me that those of us talking here or, you know, professors or even the judges have yet figured out which party the Supreme Court or anybody would have properly issued an order against in that litigation because of unique issues of state sovereign immunity and how the law is put together. And so if we're thinking about rights, I think it's important really to keep in mind that the Supreme Court there actually did has not taken any action in any way to strip anybody of any rights, whether you think the rights exist or not. It was the Texas legislature passing the law. And it's not outside of the realm of folks' possibility to be able to direct objections and concerns to the Texas legislature itself. Um, and so I think there, the Supreme Court, the folks in the majority really did feel it was their duty to, at this point in time, not disrupt the pre-litigation status quo. In the religious liberty cases, again, certainly the justices have certain jurisprudential views. I think there, as, as was sort of latent but and acknowledged in Steve's um, comment about it, you know, there were possibly competing values, right? We had the governor who was expressing some health COVID concerns, and then we had people saying there are immediate um, implications for our religious liberty. And I think there, um, these were newer issues, newer actions in in an emergency state that we hadn't necessarily seen up at the courts level before in contrast to perhaps abortion, which maybe they've thought through a little bit more and are going to be considering in Dobbs. And the court felt like it needed to, in this case, 
with however the circumstances and factors were presented to it, that the religious liberty concerns there perhaps were more burdened than whatever impact was going to be brought about by certain individual houses of worship not following certain COVID restrictions. And so I would imagine that's why they that's why they stepped in. As far as timing on the decisions, yes, I think the justices are trying to take the time that they can to issue important decisions. Now, I mean, certainly that rule can apply across the board in the, in the sense that you know, at least when I was clerking there, one of the uh, types of matters that would come up most frequently on the orders docket that the clerks were helping out with were um, people petitioning for emergency relief in situations where there was an execution. And these were often petitioners who had perhaps requested relief from federal courts multiple times, and they're requesting it one last time, the eve of an execution. And so the justices have to step in and every all resources of the court are devoted toward figuring out the right answer. And so obviously there, there's a circumstance, a state action that's about to take place that's driving the timing of the justice's consideration. So sometimes I think these are timing things. You know, if you, for, even with the government, right, some of the things that were driving emergency consideration, perhaps during the Trump administration, border wall, immigration policy, these things, the uh, executive branch would have at least perceived an emer factual emergency at the border or a pandemic crisis, perhaps with the Biden administration and the eviction moratorium. And so sometimes to the extent there's urgency, I do think that's impacting the justices. But again, my I, I do think it's helpful to just try to, um, you know, Think about, is there a problem, which I think Steve is admirably doing, and figure out if we think there is one to objectively solve it. But always try to, um, to the extent that we can, assume the best motives of others. And I think here the justices really are, in all of these cases, looking at them carefully, trying to apply the rule of law. And I'm sure that they are up at, at night just as much concerns about, you know, trying to neutrally apply the law as we are as outside observers, you know, trying to figure out how these different cases should come out and how we can do the best job in our callings. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Steve, in your congressional testimony, you identified a number of potential reforms ranging from reforms that could come from the court itself, including formally publishing any order by an individual justice uh, denying an application and also uh, reforms that could come from Congress, uh, which could codify the features for granting emergency relief. Congressional reform, of course, is uh, tough in this current climate. Um, let's focus on reforms by the court. What, what do you think would be most helpful and might any of them actually be adopted? Yeah, um, you know, Jeff, it's, it's the right question. I think the most important thing the court could do is try a little harder to persuade us of what Jen just said. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, instead of going out and giving speeches where we attack critics of the court, just do the work. Um, and if you're, if you actually think there's a coherent way to reconcile the Roman Catholic Diocese, Tandon, and SB8 rulings, great, write an opinion that says so. Um, if you really don't have time to write that opinion, issue an administrative stay. Uh, I mean, this is a, it's a technical point, Jeff, but it's not a, an unimportant one that, you know, just 11 days before the SB8 case, um, Justice Alito in his capacity as circuit justice for the Fifth Circuit issued an administrative stay of the injunction in the MPP case, even though we all know how Justice Alito probably felt about that injunction, um, to buy the court time, right, to actually think it through. So back to hearts forward um, in the Harvard Law Review, right, that, you know, there's something about time that allows the justices 
to be judicial and judicious in ways that they can't on the seat of the moment, you know, in the heat of the moment. And so when Jen talks about like capital cases, yeah, I mean, one question I want to ask on the reform front is why do we not let prisoners bring some of these cases until the 11th hour, right? Part of that's because we don't allow method of execution challenges until an execution warrant has been issued by the state. Well, maybe that's a problem in those procedures and not in the sort of timing of the appeals by the lawyers. So Jeff, when I think about reforms, right, I think about sort of ways of taking pressure off the shadow docket and ways of sort of ameliorating the concerns that these that these decisions are unprincipled and inconsistent. And so to the unprincipled and inconsistent part, the most obvious reform is explanation. That if the court's going to grant relief or if it's going to deny relief, but a justice is going to dissent, commit to even a four paragraph ruling that explains what the right test is. By the way, in the Texas SBA case, the court conflated the two different standards for relief for the different kinds of emergency relief the parties were seeking. So set out the right standard and then apply it. And Jeff, a model of this to me is the court's decision also in August um, to vacate the stay of the order blocking Biden's eviction moratorium. I actually thought that was a good use of the shadow docket where the court wrote eight pages and it said, here's the standard we apply. Here's how we're applying it. Here's why we think we should vacate the stay. It says everything that that's the exception on the shadow docket, Jeff, not the rule. So more of those. And to the sort of broader concern, right, that the court is um, ruling in ways that smack more of, you know, party than principle, right? The easiest way to fix that is just to say, no, here are the principles. Um, and you don't get those principles from merits decisions in other cases. You don't find out in the Dobbs case about Mississippi's law what the principle was that justified the ruling in the SB8 case. The principles need to come in the cases in which they're presented. And if the court doesn't have time to articulate those principles, it should either buy itself time, as Justice Alito did in the MPP case, or it should write nothing um, and not tell lower courts that they're bound by the nothing that the court said. Um, and those reforms are not about results, Jeff. Those, re those reforms are without regard to who wins and who loses, right? And this is why I think the, the piece of this that I'd shape at the most is when someone like Justice Alito says, you know, the, the critics only problem is that we don't like the results. Um, you know, that to me is preposterously unfair, um, right? That, you know, there are plenty of results on the shadow docket. I'm perfectly okay with as long as they're explained correctly. Um, we as lawyers especially should be willing to accept that process matters and that the court's legitimacy depends upon the view that we're not just trusting the justices to abide by the rule of law. We're actually seeing it in their work product that they're doing it. Jen, are there any reforms you think the court might adopt on its own that would be helpful? You both agree that the shadow docket has increased in its use since 2017, although you disagreed about the causes and the effects. But uh, on the theory that more explanation can be better than less, or anything the court could do to reassure its critics? As far as the court's reform itself, I mean, my position is that I think generally the court is working well. I think that it is a good nonpartisan institution. I thought the same thing in 2018 after Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed. And then I started being asked questions about whether the court was illegitimate because he was he, he made it through the confirmation process. I think the answers 
No. I mean, and, and as far as explanation, sure, maybe on the orders docket, there's not as lengthy opinions. But I mean, anybody who can read the dozens and dozens of pages that come out with every merits ruling now with multiple separate opinions and say the court doesn't explain itself. I think, you know, it's it clearly the justices are trying to explain explain themselves. And I mean, since the phrase was used preposterously unfair, I, I, I think the particular charge that about party over um, principle, I, I just, that, I mean, I just have to object on the merits because I think when you look at the individual justices, particularly my former boss, Justice Thomas, just time and time and time again, whether it's in Fourth Amendment cases, whether it's in preemption cases, again, joining Justice Breyer in the Affordable Care Act case is constantly joining rulings. And so are many of the other justices that are not lining up with what you think a quote unquote conservative justice might do on the merits. And I feel sometimes as though those are overlooked. And even when you look at SCOTUS blog statistics on how much the justices agree, there are certain aspects of that that suggest that the newer justices are willing to sort of buddy up and team up with people who are on other sides of the aisle perhaps than in the past. So again, I would just go back to, I think we should try to, you know, respect people as trying to be good faith actors. If we're going to think about reform, Steve does raise some ideas that I think are worthy of consideration. I also would hope that they're all thought about in conjunction with reform, particularly at the district court level and national injunctions, because I think whatever a body of nine justices is doing cannot be as alarming as decisions issued unilaterally by one decision maker who's obviously going to have their own personal biases at play. So I hope that as we think through what the court is doing on the orders docket, we will also think about what's happening at multiple levels. And Congress certainly could try to step in and rethink jurisdiction. And I'm always in favor of Congress as a legislative body taking a trenchant look at ways in which it can help represent the interests of Americans in as strong of a way as possible. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for raising those legitimacy points, which we will certainly return to on future episodes of We the People. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this uh, wonderful discussion. And Steve, the first one is to you. Why do you believe the shadow docket is troubling and why should we, the people listeners, care about it? So thanks, Jeff. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad to have the chance to do this and to get to join you and Jen. I, I'll just say, Jen's last point is exactly the problem, um, which is, yes, we see what we call strange bedfellows on the merits docket. We see a seven to two ruling on standing in the Affordable Care Act case. We get a lengthy opinion from both sides about why the justices disagree. We don't see that on the shadow docket. The court issued 68 orders during its October 2020 term from which at least one justice publicly dissented, Jeff, in none of them, zero of the 68, did a justice to the right of Chief Justice Roberts publicly join a justice to his left. Um, that to me is you know, suggestive of a larger problem than just these are all happening quickly and there's not time for explication. Um, so when I think about like what worries me about the shadow docket, why I think it's a problem, it's not because I think the justices are acting in bad faith. I don't, you know, I, I don't. It's because they keep giving us fuel for the perception that they are. Um, it's because they are, you know, not doing anything to disabuse those who would assume bad faith. 
when they don't explain these inconsistencies, when they tell us these rulings that don't have analysis or precedential, when they seem to be favoring um, one side over the other, depending upon whether they're the executive branch of the federal government or the state, when red states do well and blue states do poorly, when Republican administrations do well and Democratic administrations do poorly. And the way that you disabuse us of that charge is you provide principled justifications for why you're ruling the way you are. When we look at the uptick in applications that the court is granting, when we look at the fact that the court is treating them as precedential, and when we look at the paucity of the justifications the court is providing. Jeff, that's why I think this raises serious legitimacy concerns, not because I think the justices are arguing in bad faith, but because I can't prove that they're not. Thank you so much for that. Jen, the last word in this great discussion is to you. Why do you believe that the shadow docket is not a problem? And why do you think that we, the people listeners, should not be concerned about it? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. Any day that I can have a lengthy discussion with Steve Vladek and Jeff Rosen is a great day. And so I'm very honored that you would bring me in to participate in this great, very important discussion. Um, and look, I... I think the Supreme Court, as I, as I said, you know, is, is doing its best to try to handle really challenging cases. And I really hope that we, the American people, as we continue to engage in discourse, whether it be on issues with the courts or issues with our elected uh, legislators um, and executives, will follow the model that I think actually the court often shows us with collegiality, where I do think, you know, often the justices are praising each other publicly as, as people um, and as great public servants. Uh, historically, you know, we saw the great friendship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. I think there are across aisle friendships. And so I think the court's actually done a remarkable job throughout the course of history as a nine member body um, through much of the history in being able to reach uh, decisions and chart a course in contentious times. And in general, I really hope that as a system of government, at the state legislative level and then at the federal executive and legislative that we as American people turn our eyes more to the folks who are elected to represent our interests and alleviate some of, I think, the misdirected pressure on um, protesting the justices and seeing them as the answers on a policy level and letting them have the more restrained role of just stepping in um, at the very final end when there's no other way in matters of constitutional rights. I think we've got some big cases before the court this term on the merits, as well as other matters. And I just look forward to um, you know, reading what the justices uh, have to say in those cases. And again, continuing an engaged discussion um, with all of you all across party lines and across viewpoints and really appreciate the opportunity. Continuing an engaged discussion across party lines. That is exactly what we aim to do here on We the People. And thank you so much, Steve Vladek and Jen Mascott, for contributing to that discussion and spreading so much light with your insights about the Supreme Court. We'll look forward to continuing this conversation throughout the year. Steve, Jen, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by David Stotz. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry and eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the passion, the generosity, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning from people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. 
You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.